0: since it's after Shabbat, after the start of Shabbat, we use the transfer. Yep. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us concerning the kindling of the Hanukkah lights. Baruka Tadunai. It's right there. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brought miracles for our fathers in days of old at this season. Amen. The servant candle reminds us of Matthew chapter 20 verse 26 where Messiah said but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant. It's in keeping with the teachings of the Messiah that the ninth candle, the shamash, should be lit first with a match except on Shabbat. When Exodus chapter 35 says no kindling of fire on Shabbat that's why we use a transfer candle. Yeshua repeatedly told his disciples he had come as a servant, and even in the last hours of his life, he took the role of servant to minister to these, his friends and followers. He thus fulfilled the prophecies of the Tanakh, especially Isaiah 53, and set an example for us that we should follow. The first candle, so if you'll take the shamash and light the first candle. The first candle reminds us that we have but one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Called the Shema, it's the command to hear, and it's the most important scripture in the Tanakh, the proclamation of the unique person of God. Because he is the only God, he wants, requires, and deserves the first place in every area of our lives. The singular character and single redemptive purpose of our holy God should bring us to worship him in all that we do, and to commit our lives to him. The second candle reminds us of unity. As it says in John 17, that they may be one as we are one. Yeshua's great prayer in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his death, was an aching cry of his heart for the unity of God and man. The bringing together of a holy God and sinful mankind was the redemptive purpose for which the Messiah came and for which he died. It is the purpose for which we too live and die. That the Messiah might use us to awaken a lost world to their need to be reconciled with God. The third candle reminds us of the triunity of God. Not trinity, but triunity. Triunity we have one God and Father of all who is above all and through all in, in all. God is a triunity, three expressions of one unique, dynamic character. He's called Creator, Redeemer, and Comforter. He's called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord is one, and yet through the great mystery of these three holy expressions, he ministers truth and grace and power to those who have given their lives to him. He calls us, too, to be holy and complete, uniting spirit, soul, and body to love and serve him. The fourth candle reminds us of judgment. For as it says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The light of salvation is seen through Yeshua. The light of the world has meaning only for those who realize that they are lost in darkness. Each of us must come to terms with the fact that we have betrayed God through things we should have done but didn't do and things which we have done but we should not have done. Our betrayal of what we know to be right has left us in spiritual darkness and yearning for the light that will show us the way back to the Father of lights. The fifth candle reminds us of the grace of God. The scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The value of a gift is measured in many ways. By how much it costs, by how personal it is, by how much love went into the giving, by the feelings that gift stirs in our hearts. By all of these measures, God's gift to us is inexpressibly precious. It cost God his only begotten son, and it cost Yeshua his life. It offers each of us a unique and personal relationship with God himself. A gift offered through his unimaginable love. The sixth candle reminds us of creation. It says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. God created man on the sixth day in his own image. This was the culmination of the fantastic creation of all nature, plants and animals, mountains and seas, skies and planets, and the deep places of the earth. God invested this final creation with the semblance of his own nature and the unique capacity to relate consciously, deliberately to him in faith and love. He breathed into us the breath of life and the capacity to choose our own destiny. The seventh candle reminds us of completion and rest. In Genesis 2, the scripture tells us that God rested from all his work which he had created and made. In the Bible, seven is the number for completion for God's finishing touch on his magnificent work of creation. After the work, God rested. And it is good to know that in these days of high stress and seemingly endless activity, he expects us to rest too, for so He gives His beloved sleep. Go ahead. The eighth candle reminds us of a new beginning. If anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation, says Second Corinthians chapter five. Through the grace of God, endings are always beginnings for believers. The end of sin is the beginning of righteousness. The end of guilt is the beginning of freedom. The end of fear is the beginning of love. Yeshua asks us to let our lives to lay our, rest our will to do what we want, when we want, the way we want, so that his will can begin anew within us. In exchange, he promises an ultimate end to all that has meant frustration and fear and dissatisfaction and a new birth of hope, of faith, and of love in our hearts. Let us take a brief look at Hanukkah. What's it about? Why do we celebrate it? Why is it important? I'm going to do that by reading from an article published many years ago in a magazine called Zion's Hope. It says the year was 336 BCE. And the winds of change were beginning to blow. Turbulence that would forever shape the history of mankind swept through the ancient world. That year Darius III came to the mighty Medo-Persian throne which ruled the world. But of greater significance another king ascended to a throne in the west. He was Alexander, son of Philip II, king of the Greek city-state Macedonia. Though only 20 years of age, Alexander was nothing short of a brilliant commander. The might and wealth of the Persian Empire dwarfed his own, but his sheer military genius enabled him to move with lightning speed against the Persians. In 332 BCE, only some three years later, the armies of Alexander the Great defeated Darius III at Issus. By age 30... Alexander had conquered all the then-known world, from Egypt and Europe to the borders of India. True to his teacher Aristotle, Alexander unified his empire through the cohesive force of Greek culture and religion known as Hellenism. The golden age of the Greek Empire, like a shooting star, was brief, lasting but a few years. At age 33, Alexander the Great died an untimely death without an heir, and the rule of his empire was passed to his four generals. They geographically divided the vast Grecian empire into four parts with Seleucus ruling Syria and Eastern Asia Minor, with Ptolemy ruling Egypt, Lysimachus ruling Thrace and Western Asia Minor and Cassander, ruling Macedonia and Greece. Had it not been for her geographic location, the tiny vassal state of Israel would certainly have gone unnoticed amidst the swirling currents of the ancient world. But such was not the case. Israel was strategically located between Syria and Egypt, the land bridge between the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe control of Israel was key to dominance in the region. With the death of Alexander, Israel again found herself at the center of the maelstrom. For almost two centuries she was tossed like a leaf in the wind between the expansionistic Seleucid or Syrian empire and the Ptolemaic or Egyptian empire that sought to dominate the Middle East. In 171 B.C., Antiochus IV came to the Seleucid throne in Syria. He was a tyrant, cruel, harsh, and savage. He wore his pride like a garment. Believing that he was deity in the flesh, he referred to himself as Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the visible god or just Antiochus Epiphanes for short. His detractors, including his closest friends, called him Epimenes or Madman. Without warning, Israel found herself exposed to the gale-force winds of his intolerant rule. Antiochus was anxious to unite his kingdom of many languages, cultures, and religions. These diversities only served to fan the fires, of individual nationalism and independence. He desired to Hellenize or to impose Greek language, thought, and religion upon his subjects in an effort to unify his rule through assimilation. In response, two political factions developed within Israel. The religious in Israel comprised the Orthodox Party. They desired rule by the Ptolemies in Egypt since that dynasty did not seek to Hellenize its subjects. Hellenism was far more than just Greek philosophy and ordered society. It was built around the Greek religion. It deified nature, created a pantheon of mythological gods, and promoted widespread immorality in the worship of those gods. The Orthodox party was committed to preserving Judaism and the pure worship of the God of Israel. Conversely, there were those of the progressive Hellenist party. They included many of the aristocracy who had little concern for the faith of their fathers. They saw only the economic and social advantages of appearing enlightened, civilized, and accepted by the advanced nations through the world which embraced Hellenism. Therefore, these Hellenists desired Syrian rule along with its imposed Greek culture. This group willingly forsook. The Greek word means to apostatize or abandon the Holy Covenant. We find that in First Maccabees chapter 1, verse 15. Now in Jerusalem, Yochanan Onias the third was high priest and was vehemently opposed to Hellenistic forces within the nation. His brother Joshua, however, was not of the same conviction. Joshua changed his name to the Greek name of Jason and led the Hellenistic faction, meaning Israel supported him and desired a covenant with the Greeks. We find that in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 11. Seizing the opportunity, Jason offered an enormous bribe to Antiochus Epiphanes to obtain the office of high priest. He also promised to build a temple to the Greek god Phallus and a gymnasium where men perform naked in Jerusalem and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch, the capital of Syria. Antiochus gladly gave his consent and Jason became high priest. When Jason had his brother killed by assassins, Israel became a cauldron of internal strife. Never before had an outsider dared to tamper with the divinely instituted high priesthood. To further intensify the situation, three years later, Menelaus, a rabid Hellenist, and not even from the high priestly family, obtained the high priest's office by an even larger bribe. Once in office, he was disappointed to learn that the temple treasury from offerings to the people could not support the payment of his bribe. So he stole the golden vessels from the temple to pay his bribe to Antiochus. Meanwhile, the ambitions of Antiochus' Epiphanes continued to grow. He aspired to reunify the Grecian Empire as it was in the days of Alexander the Great. In 168 BCE, he warred against Egypt, and victory seemed certain. However, the Roman Senate dispatched Popilius Linnaeus to prevent Antiochus from taking Egypt. When asked if he wished peace or war with Rome, Antiochus stalled for time the Roman representative drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and stated that he must decide before leaving the circle. Consequently, Antiochus was forced to withdraw from Egypt in great humiliation. On his return to Syria, Antiochus stopped in Jerusalem. Already in a great rage because of Roman interference, He learned that Jason had had mounted a rebellion against Menelaus after hearing a rumor of Antiochus' death. Antiochus was incensed by this mockery and challenged to his authority. The continued political intrigue within Israel and deep-seated resistance to Hellenization had run its full course with his patience. And so suddenly, without warning, Antiochus ordered his general to destroy Jerusalem. The full heat of his wrath and frustration was vented on the Jewish people. Houses were burned. The walls of the city were breached. And tens of thousands were killed or sold into slavery. But his destruction did not cease. Antiochus turned his attention to the temple on Mount Zion. Syrian soldiers hacked and smashed the porches and gates. They stripped the temple of its golden vessels and treasures. It was on Kislev 15 of 168 BCE that Antiochus erected an idol of Zeus, the supreme deity of the Greek pantheon, on the holy altar in the courtyard. Not surprisingly, it bore the face of Antiochus. On the birthday of Zeus, which was Kislev, December 25th that year, which also happened to be December 25th, Antiochus offered a pig on the altar. The pig was the ultimate abomination to the Jewish mind, strictly forbidden by the law of God. Antiochus sprinkled its blood in the Holy of Holies and poured its broth over the Holy Scrolls before he cut them to pieces and burned them. The shock the horror. The nation reeled with severe trauma. The sanctuary of the Most High had been polluted and profaned. It had been desecrated and defiled. In the words of 1 Maccabees, it was, quote, laid waste like a wilderness, unquote. That's First Maccabees chapter 1, verse 39. And trodden down, as it said in First Maccabees chapter 3, verse 45. And as such, the nation was left utterly desolate. The temple was converted to a shrine to Zeus, and only swine, that's piggies, were permitted for sacrifice. A fortress called the Acra was erected adjacent to the temple so that a Syrian garrison could control the shrine. Furthermore, Antiochus issued an edict forbidding the practice of Judaism on pain of death and enforced it by house searches. If Sabbath was observed, or dietary laws kept, or circumcision performed, or scrolls of the Torah found, the whole family was put to death. Babies were hung around their mothers' necks, and women were thrown from the walls of the cities. The line had been drawn, either assimilate or be annihilated. Dark days followed, filled with terror and persecution. The faithful immediately fled to the wilderness or to the Judean hills to live in caves. But they were hunted like animals. During that time of intense suffering, thousands sacrificed their lives to remain true to God. Jewish history records several heroic acts of faithful devotion. For instance, Eleazar. 90 years of age and one of the principal scribes was brought before Antiochus and commanded to eat swine's flesh he refused to defile himself and break the law of God so the soldiers asked him to bring his own lawful meat and eat it as if it were the detestable pork after an eloquent statement of faith he remained unmoved not willing to deceive the young people with his example With that, the soldiers beat him mercilessly until he died. Another account relates the enduring courage of a woman named Hannah and her seven sons. They too were arrested and compelled to eat swine's flesh and thereby assent to the pagan sacrifice. One by one, the sons were tortured, and when they refused to yield, they were boiled alive in cauldrons. When one son was approached to apostatize or have his tongue and hands cut off, he courageously testified, quote, "These I had from heaven, and for his laws I despised them, and from him I hope to receive them again." That Second Maccabees chapter seven verse eleven. Another affirmed before he died, quote, "It is good being put to death by men." to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him, unquote. 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 14. As the last son was pressed to deliver himself by apostatizing, his mother encouraged him with the resurrection, quote, but doubtless the creator of the world who formed the generation of man and found out the beginning of all things Will also of his own mercy give you breath and life again. Fear not this tormentor, but, being worthy of thy brethren, take thy death, that I may receive thee again in mercy with thy brethren, End quote. Second Maccabees chapter seven, verses 23 and 29. Finally, the mother was put to death. All steadfastly refused deliverance in hope of the resurrection. The untold pain of the Jewish nation continued. Syrian detachments were dispatched throughout the nation to enforce the diabolical plan of Antiochus. One such detachment came to the tiny village of Moda about 17 miles northwest of Jerusalem. There they built a pagan altar to Zeus. The townspeople were assembled, and an aged priest named Mattathias was singled out of the crowd. He was ordered to offer a sacrificial pig to the Greek gods in honor of Antiochus. Mattathias, head of gray hair, was visible testimony of the respect he carried with the people. He was the great-grandson of Chazmon, a descendant of Jehoiurab of the first division of priests. He was also the father of five sons, John, Simon, Judah, Eleazar, and Jonathan. But now all eyes were upon him. What would he do? Never, he replied with defiance. At that moment, an apostate priest approached the altar and requested permission to offer the pig. The onlookers knew what would follow. After the sacrifice, they would all be forced to eat its flesh in identification with the offering. Indignation stirred in the heart of Mattathias and erupted into violence. He ripped the sword from the hand of the Syrian officer and killed him. Rushing forward, he ran the sword through the body of the apostate priest and left him lying on the altar. His five sons immediately engaged and slew the remaining soldiers in the commotion. Quickly, they pulled down the altar. Knowing that severe retribution would be taken, they and the faithful of the city fled to the hills of Judea, leaving all possessions behind. And so the revolt began, an uprising against the enemies of the one true God. Each day the faithful band grew as the word of the rebellion spread. They engaged in guerrilla warfare, attacking Syrian outposts, destroying pagan altars, and chastising apostate sympathizers. But within a year, Agent Matthias grew sick and died. On his deathbed, leadership was passed to his son Judah. Judah was the right choice, a military genius in his own right. He was called the Maccabee, believed to be derived from the Hebrew word makkavet, meaning hammer. It spoke of the sheer might of his military prowess. For three years the revolt raged, hiding in caves and lying in ambush. The Maccabees gradually frustrated and wore down the Syrian occupation. Finally the freedom fighters met the enemy in open battle. They secured stunning victories at beth Horon and Emmaus, opening the road to Jerusalem. The forces of Judah were hardly prepared for what they were to encounter in Jerusalem. The gates of the temple were burned. Weeds grew waist-high in its courtyards, and above it all loomed the hideous suicidal with the face of Antiochus. They ripped their clothes and threw handfuls of dust on their heads as they wept. Oh how the desolate that nation had been made. The liberators began immediately to cleanse the sanctuary. They removed the defilement in the Greek idol. Because of the pollution to the altar they pulled down its stones and stored them, quote, until there should come a prophet to give an answer concerning them. First Maccabees chapter four, verses forty four to forty six. They rebuilt the holy altar and on Kislev 25, 165 B.C.E., That's the start of Hanukkah. Exactly three years to the day from its defilement, they rededicated the altar to the Lord. According to Jewish tradition recorded in the Talmud in Shabbat 21B, the Maccabees found only one small cruise of unpolluted oil in the temple, which still bore the unbroken seal of the high priest. It was but one day's supply for the golden lampstand. According to the tradition, it miraculously burned for eight days until a new supply of oil could be consecrated. Hence, this tradition explains why Hanukkah is held for eight days. Over the past 2,000 years, the Hanukkah observance has continued to develop. Many beautiful traditions exist today that remember the Lord's deliverance through the faithful Maccabees. Now the Old Testament does not directly mention Hanukkah since it was not instituted until after the Old Testament the Tanakh was complete. But even though Hanukkah is not mentioned by name the events of Hanukkah were prophesied centuries beforehand by the Hebrew prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 8 verses 1 to 12 Daniel saw an awesome vision. He saw a ram with two horns representing the Medo-Persian empire pushing so that no beast could stand before it. Then a goat, representing the Grecian Empire, appeared in the west and moved so quickly that his feet did not touch the ground. A very noticeable horn, which represents Alexander the Great, was between its eyes. The goat, representing Greece, crashed into the ram, representing Medo-Persia, with incredible fury, and broke the two horns from its head, all but killing it. No sooner had the goat, representing Greece, become great, its large horn was broken, allowing four smaller horns representing Alexander's generals to replace it. Then amazingly, a little horn, representing Antiochus, came up from among the four and became exceedingly powerful. And we're going to read all this from the scripture in a few minutes. It cast down some of the stars that is the righteous juice and stamped on them. It even magnified itself to the prince of the starry host, took away the sacrifices, and cast down his sanctuary, that being the temple in Jerusalem. Several chapters later in Daniel 11, Daniel again prophesied of this coming Syrian persecution and the courage of God's people. He wrote, quote, But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits, talking about the Maccabees, and they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Quote. It's only natural that during Hanukkah, the celebration of freedom from foreign oppression, that thoughts of national deliverance would again be aroused. In the day of Yeshua, Israel was looking for the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah himself, who would overthrow Roman rule. If he were to deliver the Jewish nation, they would never fall under Gentile dominion again. He would usher in the golden messianic age, making it possible for the Shekhinah glory to return to the temple, as in the days of Solomon's dedication of the temple. With this thought in their minds, a group of Jewish inquirers came to Yeshua. It was Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, and Yeshua was walking along Solomon's colonnade the pillared walkway in the temple. And we'll read about that in just a few minutes. But I also want you to know that the writer of Hebrews, which was the Apostle Paul, in citing examples of great faith, mentioned the godly believers who stood against Antiochus Epiphanes. So with that, let's go to the scripture. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them up to the book of John, chapter 10. Which the reading in science hope was just mentioning, John chapter ten, starting in verse twenty-two. Hanukkah is mentioned many times in the scriptures, even though it's only mentioned by name in this passage. But we're going to see it's mentioned many times in the scriptures. In John 10, verse 22, it says, Now it was the feast of dedication, that's Hanukkah, in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Yeshua walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Judeans surrounded him and said to him, How long do you plan to keep us in doubt? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father's I and my father are one, Echad, just like the Shema says. Then the Judeans took up stones again to stone him. Yeshua answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Judeans answered him, saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. The next place that we see in the scripture that Hanukkah is mentioned is in Matthew. Chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is the prophecy of the end times. The day of the Lord which has not yet come. The Atid lavo. It starts at the end of the 6,000 years from creation. In Matthew 24 verse 15 we read this takes place just before the midpoint of the seven year tribulation period. Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand when those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation refers to that image of Zeus Kyrios with Antiochus own face on it. The false messiah is going to do the very same thing 30 days before the midpoint of the tribulation period. Let's also look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of Eleazar and of Hannah and of those that we just read about. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 35 to 39. It says, Women received their dead raised to life again. Elijah did that, if you remember, in the Old Testament. Others were tortured. That's referring to the folks we just read about at Hanukkah, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. Were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, and tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Remember we read about the Maccabees how they fled to the deserts and to the dens and the caves. It says, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise that is not yet. The promise is yet to come. With that, let's go back to Daniel 8 and read about the prophecies that were written hundreds of years before the events of Hanukkah took place. We'll start in Daniel chapter 8 and we'll read verses 1 through 14. Daniel chapter 8. The candles are about burned out, so I'm going to adjust the camera a little bit. That's closer anyway. Okay. Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar a vision appeared to me. To me. Daniel. After the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw the vision and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan the citadel. Wait a minute. King Belshazzar. Of what kingdom was he king? What's that? Babylon. Babylon. So Daniel is still in Babylon. Medo-Persia has not yet overthrown Babylon. Well, what was the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire? Shushan. Shushan the citadel. So while he's still in Babylon, before Medo-Persia conquers Babylon, Daniel has a vision that he's standing in Shushan, which is in the province of Elam. And I was in the vision, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Remember, Alam is in what is today Iran. It's where the sheer nuclear reactor is that, according to Jeremiah, is soon going to get put out of operation. Verse 3 Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. That's Medo Persia, that's why two horns and one of the two horns and the two horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last verse 4 i saw the ram pushing westward northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him that is they conquered everybody they approached no is there any that could deliver from his hand but he did according to his will and became great so that's the medo persian empire that conquers babylon and controls the world Verse 5, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. That's the one that represents Greece. Across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Kids, who was that notable horn? Alexander the Great. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram and he was moved with rage against him attacked the ram and broke his two horns and there was no power in the ram to withstand him and he cast him down to the ground and trampled him there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand so Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia now overthrown by Greece verse 8 therefore the male goat grew very great when he became strong the large horn was broken that's the death of Alexander the Great and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, that's the four generals that divided his kingdom into four pieces. And out of one of them came a little horn, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, up in Syria, out of the Seleucid dynasty, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, that's the Egyptian dynasty under the Ptolemies. You've heard of the Ptolemies, right? Name me one Ptolemy ruler. A woman liked to play with snakes. Cleopatra. Yep, yeah, she was of the Ptolemies. Toward the east and toward the glorious land, which is Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Talking about the righteous Jewish people who kept their faith in God, how they put some to death over to others. Verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Does that remind you of Daniel 9, 27, and what the false messiah is going to do in the day of the Lord? Yeah. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. Because the transgression means because some of the children of Israel wanted to turn away from God and embrace the Hellenism, God allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to conquer the land. And he cast truth down to the ground. What is truth? Psalm 119 verse 142. The Torah. So he forbid the practicing of the Torah. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a Holy One speaking... And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression and desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and a house to be trampled underfoot? He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So it tells us who's going to conquer Israel, who's going to destroy the sanctuary He's going to set up the abomination of desolation and how long it will last until the Maccabees were able to dedicate it back to God. And then in Daniel chapter 11, we read some more of the story. Again, prophesied hundreds of years before the events took place. In Daniel 11, we'll start with verses 1 through 4. And then we'll go down to verse 28. Daniel 11 says, Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, he was the king who overthrew Babylon and brought Medo-Persia to power. I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is arisen, the kingdom will be broken up and divided toward the far winds of heaven. Those are the four generals of Alexander the Great. But not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. In verse 2, I didn't mean to say that king was Antiochus Epiphanes. That was a ruler of Persia. Verse 5. Also the king of the south, that's the Ptolemies down in Egypt, shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Go down to verse 28. By returning to his land with great riches, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, now who's been defeated down in Egypt by Rome, drawing that circle around him in the sand and making him declare his intentions before he steps out of the circle. His heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go towards the south but it shall not be like the former or the latter for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. That is he gave wealth and power and riches to the Jewish people who would turn away from God and embrace Hellenization. And forces shall be mustered by him And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. That's what Messiah refers to in Matthew 24, verse 15. That was the statue of Zeus with the face of Antiochus on it. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. That is, he gave great honor to the Jewish people who had abandoned God. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. That refers to the Maccabees. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and by plundering. That is, the war went on for how long? For three years. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, and many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So verse 35 says, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white. They're referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, as we read earlier. The timing of the abomination of desolation in the day of the Lord in the tribulation period to which Messiah referred, looking back to Hanukkah, is in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, let's look at verses 11 and 12. What did Antiochus do? He took away the the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. The false Messiah in Daniel 9:27 will do the very same thing. Verse 11 says, "And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there should be 1,290 days." That's how we know it happens 30 days before the midpoint, because the seven-year tribulation period is divided into two halves, each are 1,260 days. So 30 days before the midpoint the false Messiah will stop the sacrifices, set up the abomination of desolation in the temple and what did Messiah tell the children of Israel to do? To flee to Petra, right? Flee to the wilderness. And then verse 12 says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days which brings you to the time of the rededication of the altar back to God. Let's also look at the book of Haggai, chapter 2. In Hebrew, the word feast is chag, C-H-A-G, if you want to spell it with English letters. And the A-I on the end is plural for my, so my festivals. And Haggai relates the rebuilding of the temple to the festivals of God. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you get to Malachi, turn back a few pages. Haggai chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. We're going to find out that the foundation of the the temple is laid on the eve of Hanukkah. Haggai chapter 2, starting in Verse 18 says, consider now from this day forward and from the 24th day of the ninth month that's the day before Hanukkah begins from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. And again the word Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month or again the day before Hanukkah saying speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah saying I will shake heaven and earth I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them the horses and their riders shall come down everyone By the sword of his brother. In that day says the Lord of hosts. In what day? In the day of the Lord. So not only does this speak about. Earlier temples. But it's talking about the laying of the cornerstone. For the next temple. In that day says the Lord of hosts. I will take you Zerubbabel my servant. The son of Shealtiel says the Lord. And will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you. Says the Lord of hosts. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 43, which prophesies the next temple. Israel's getting very close to starting the construction of that next temple, aren't they? At least if we believe the news. Ezekiel chapter 43. Let me give you a chance to find it. good chapter 43 verse 1. Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. We're talking about the golden gate or the eastern gate on the temple mount which faces the mount of Olives. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. That is, he's coming from the Mount of Olives toward the Temple Mount. The Shekinah glory of God, that dwelling presence, departed from the temple around the tenth chapter of Ezekiel, right before Babylon destroyed the first temple. And has not returned, but returns in Ezekiel 43. Verse 2, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. That's the way Messiah's voice is described in Revelation 1.15 and Revelation 18.1. And the earth shone with his glory, just as it did in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while the man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man... This is the place of my throne. That is, that's where the Lord will rule and reign. And the place of the soles of my feet. That shows ownership and possession. Why will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, never more again to depart. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When I set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry in the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And let them measure the pattern. And if they're ashamed of all that they've done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. Whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. These are the measurements of the altar in cubits. The cubit is one cubit in a hand breadth. The base, one cubit high, and one cubit wide. With a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits, and the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high, with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is twelve cubits long, twelve wide, square at it its four corners. The ledge, fourteen cubits long and fourteen wide on its four sides, and a rim of half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it's made. For sacrificing burnt offerings on it. And for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are the seed of Zadok. Who approached me to minister to me, says the Lord God. Or again, my Lord Hashem. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. See, what did the Maccabees have to do when they were able to drive out the Seleucid armies? Is They had to rebuild the altar and dedicate it back to God. And when did they rededicate it back to God? At Hanukkah. Where will they dedicate this altar back to God at Hanukkah. Let's look at Psalm 30. Psalm 30 is a psalm of dedication. Psalm 30. It's a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from the grave. You've kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountains stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned from me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm's all about the fact that God may be angry with us for a while, but his anger will not last forever. He will eventually forgive us, restore us, and we will sing praises to the Lord our God from now into eternity future. So, part of what we learn from the study of Hanukkah is that the people had a choice. Would they assimilate and adopt the Greek language, customs, cultures, religions, etc. to save their own lives. Or would they say true to God, even even if it cost them their very lives. And if we turn to the book of Acts chapter 6, we're going to see part of the ramifications of that. In Acts chapter 6 we find that there are two groups amongst the Jewish people. There are the Hebrew speaking Jews and the Greek speaking Jews. The Greek speaking Jews are the descendants of those who apostatized and accepted the Greek language and religion in the days of Hanukkah. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1 it says, now in those days When the number of the disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews that is the the Hebrew speaking Jews by the Hellenists or the Greek speaking Jews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There was still a lot of animosity even in those days against the Jewish people who had said "Ah, who, who wants to worship a god When we can go off and join the Greek language and culture and be part of the enlightened world. And during the time of the tribulation period, people are going to be facing that very same situation. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Something that's coming up very shortly. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 Verses 24 to 27 are about a 70 period of 7 years each. 6 years then a sabbath year, 6 years then a sabbath year. 70 of those 7-year periods. Verse 26 tells us that after 483 years from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem Messiah would be put to death. That was about 2,000 years ago. And it refers in verse 26 to the false Messiah called here the prince who is to come. Verse 27 it tells us that that false Messiah will confirm a covenant with many for one week that is for a seven year period. That's the seven years of the tribulation period says he shall bring an end to, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So he's going to do what, God bless you, what Antiochus Epiphanes did about 200 years ago. That is, put a stop to the sacrifices and offerings in the temple. And forced the people to assimilate into his religion and his culture. Or to be put to death. But if you go to Revelation chapter 14, we're going to find that like the Maccabees, there's going to be a large segment of the people who will not apostatize. They will stay true to God even if it costs them their very lives. So while Hanukkah is historical, it's also very prophetic. In Revelation 14, 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints, That word saints is hagios, it means the holy ones. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So what kind of traditions do we have at Hanukkah time to help us remember the story and never forget that if we remain true to God and refuse to turn away and apostatize, that God will be with us and will lead us to victory. Well, the first thing we do at Hanukkah is we light the lights. And then, in our house especially, we read Psalms 113 to 118. And then Psalm 136. I don't have a dreidel up here. Another thing we do is to play dreidel. The dreidel was designed at a time when the children of Israel were forbidden from practicing their religion openly. So at Hanukkah time they would make dreidels and they contained four Hebrew letters which represent Neskedol Hayasham. A great miracle happened there. Unless of course you're in Israel when it says Neskedol Po, A great miracle happened here. And as the children play with the dreidel, if any of the soldiers came by it looked to them like they were just playing a game. But while playing the game they could explain in the tell the story of Chanukah and remind each other what happened. One of my favorite traditions and customs is the eating of the Suf the jelly donuts. Love jelly donuts. Thank you. Here are two examples of dreidels. One has a sheen, one has a pay. So, neskidohaya, neskidohaya, Sham Neskidol Hayapo. A great miracle happened there. A great miracle happened here. And for those who are interested, I sent out the directions to the game. This one's got a sheen I got to put in. That one's got a gimmel. I get. Okay. Another tradition is to eat latkes, which are potato pancakes with onions that are fried. My mama used to make these when I was little. She didn't call them latkes. She just called them potato pancakes. But that's what latke is. It's a potato pancake. And if you're musically inclined, there's lots of songs. Anybody know, Dradle, Dradle, Dradle. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So with that, let's bring our Bible study to a close. And let us remember that... The story of Hanukkah is more important than the little games and things we do. That there will be times that Satan will try to wipe out the children of Israel. Because Messiah said in Matthew 23 that we will see him no more till the children of Israel cry, Baruch HaVab Hashem and I. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Satan has tried throughout the centuries to destroy the Jewish people so that Messiah will never return. We've read the end of the book though and